You um, just read it just a few minutes ago, but there's this Old Testament account in um, Genesis, pretty early on in Genesis, chapter 13 of Genesis, of a king named Melchizedek. And he is startling um, because of his sudden appearance, his very brief cameo, and then the significant influence that he goes on to have on our scriptures. Now, we don't hear from Melchizedek again after Genesis. We don't hear from from him again until our psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 110. And David is writing of an exchange between the Lord, Yahweh, and his Lord. And and how does David have a Lord? Because David's the king, and isn't he the Lord? What's going on? David is describing an exchange between his Lord and and Yahweh, and we're going to come back to that. And so in Psalm 110... We see a messianic figure, David's Lord, that uh, goes on, it's proclaimed, he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so all of a sudden, this very slight Old Testament figure has significant importance because who he is impacts our understanding of the Messiah, David's Lord. And of course... If you were to read your New Testament thoroughly, you would realize that Psalm 110 is the go-to psalm of the New Testament authors. It is quoted almost more than any other Old Testament passage in all of Scripture. And all of a sudden, Melchizedek, in his cameo in Genesis, has a significant impact on how we understand who Jesus is, and how he fulfills his mission. And so we are in week six of our summer sermon series, Hard Sayings in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at this figure of Melchizedek. And what I want us to do is to focus in on Hebrews chapter 7, and that will give us a a broad range of his, his appearances in Scripture. And so if there was a day to follow along, today is the day. Because this is a complicated text, you might have to actually think. I know it's Sunday, but y'all can, y'all can do that. Um, and, and see and understand perhaps a little bit better who this Melchizedek figure is. And what I hope you come away with is this. That Melchizedek anticipates the coming of a great priest king. He anticipates the coming of Jesus, who is both our priest and our king. And is significant, we will see that he is both of those. So we're in Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to start at verse 1. So the first thing that's helpful about this passage in Hebrews is the author actually, um, in his own way, reminds us of what happened in Genesis. He reminds us of who Melchizedek is. He does that in the first three verses. Um, and so you'll remember, we read, we read part of it this morning, that um, Abraham has just led a raiding party to rescue his nephew Lot. Lot was um, a member of a group of, of people who were living in, in Sodom who got, um, got kidnapped when a rival king raided Sodom, kidnapped some of its residents, and kidnapped uh, and stole a lot of its um, money and loot and, and took off. And so the, the king of Sodom commissions Abraham to gather up some men and to, to go get his citizens back 
and to um, perhaps even recover some of the money. And Abraham, of course, was willing to do it because he wanted to rescue his nephew, Lot. So Abraham and his men chase them down. They get the captives and they get the spoil. And they're bringing them back to the king of Sodom. And right before they get to Sodom, and Sodom, I mean, you can like see Sodom. He's, he's there. He's, he's coming out to greet them. And then all of a sudden, Melchizedek just shows up. He just shows up in the text. And he greets Abraham. Now, the author of Hebrews um, really notes three striking things, or, or even more, but, but three for starters about this Melchizedek. Um, the first thing is this. His name, Melchizedek, translates the king of righteousness. Melchizedek in Hebrew means the king of righteousness. The second thing, his land, Salem, is, is, is a derivative of the Jewish word shalom, which means peace, specifically peace of God. So not only is he the king of righteousness, he's also known as the king of peace. And then finally, it says that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. These things are are strange, they're out of place, and they really stand out in this story in Genesis. And thus, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, a priest of the Most High God, meets Abraham, offers Abraham a blessing, and in response, Abraham gives him 10% of everything he has. He pays him a tithe. Melchizedek goes on his way. Abraham goes on his way. This is a striking story. The author of Hebrew agrees with that. And he actually goes on to note there in verses 1 to 3 the absence of a few things. Almost every other person you'll read about in Genesis is begotten from somebody. There's just long lists of name after name of this person. I mean, that was a very important thing. Even when we come to Jesus in the New Testament, we, we have to know whose who's grand, grandbaby he is, right? Not, not for Melchizedek. There's no list of parents. There's no account of Melchizedek's death. And so the author of Hebrews notes this. He says, as far as Scripture is concerned, this man has no beginning or end of days. He has an eternal reign to his priesthood. Now, does this mean Melchizedek never died? You know, maybe or maybe not. Scripture, I think, is silent on that. All the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, look, when you read the story for what it says, none of these things are mentioned. And this Scripture's failure to mention that is important. And so it's not that Melchizedek is the son of God, but he's a foreshadowing, an anticipation of the Messiah. Um, He resembles the Messiah. He's in the likeness of the Messiah. But the author of Hebrews concludes this. He's without father or mother, there in verse 3, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. He resembles the Son of God. He anticipates one to come. He is a shadow of the coming Messiah. And so in light of that, this is obviously very important, um, (laughs) it really helps us to consider how does he function in the biblical story? What does Melchizedek do? Well, in short, we might say, the Melchizedek gives us a priesthood that is greater than the priesthood described in the law of Moses. 
Now, just a quick aside. The priesthood in the law of Moses is very different than, say, my priesthood or, or Father Tripp's priesthood or Father John's priesthood. We're, we're different types of priests. The priesthood in the Old Testament was mediating between God and man. And just hear me clearly on this. You don't need us to mediate between you and God. You have Jesus. That's the whole point of this text we're reading. And so we're a different type of priest. So don't, 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 don't call us, don't consider us as synonymous. The Old Testament priest mediates between God and man. And so this is prescribed in the law. You might remember that there's, there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? Um, one of those tribes was a tribe called Levi. And so when they got to the promised land, all the other tribes got a piece of land, but not Levi. They didn't get any land because they were specifically set aside to be in charge of the temple. They got no land. And all the other tribes gave them a tithe. Levi collected a tithe, 10%. And that tithe sustained their livelihood. It helped them live. And it also helped them um, go through the work of the temple and make sacrifices and do upkeep on the temple and be in charge of of the, the system of worshiping God. And so their function, as we said, is to serve as mediators between the people of Israel and Yahweh, between the people of Israel and God. They would offer sacrifices and intercede on their behalf. Now, in particular, once a year was a very important sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The high priest, okay, so the the highest priest of all the priests, a descendant of Aaron, he would ritually prepare himself. He would spend days doing this, cleansing, washing, making sure he hadn't been in touch with unclean food or unclean people. He had to be perfectly clean without blemish. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple, that no one else could go in except for this one man and on this one day of the year. And he would offer a sacrifice to God. This was believed to be the the dwelling place of God in the innermost part of the temple. And and the, the high priest would offer a sacrifice to God for the atonement of the sin of Israel. A sacrifice that would take the punishment, death, that the Israelites deserved for their failure to keep their covenant with God. This was such a terrifying ordeal that they would actually tie a rope around his waist. And he would walk in and the rope would would stay behind... And if for some reason he hadn't done his job correctly and wasn't ready and hadn't made all the the proper rituals to be clean, and if he got there and, and he got into the presence of God and he was not acceptable and God struck him down, they could use the rope to pull out his body. It was a terrifying ordeal. But here were the Levites functioning in this way, mediating between man and God. Now, this sounds a little foreign. This is a little like, I don't know if I've ever experienced anything quite like that. Yes and no. Some, some ways we're not that different. I think we approach God very often in this way, as, as, as if it's some sort of transaction. Like, I know I did these things wrong, but I'll do these good things to make up for it, God. I used to help in seminary. I would, one of my... Um, clinical pastoral education classes was to, uh, to work with, as a hospice chaplain. And I had the great privilege of talking, peop- talking to people as they approached death. And at least half of them 
when I would say, well, how do you stand with God? What are you going to say when you meet God? About half of them would say, well, I would say to God that I hope I've done more good things in my life than bad things. I hope I've made up for my sin with my deeds. I hope I've gone to church enough. I hope I've read my Bible enough. I hope I've prayed with my kids enough. We're making priestly sacrifices of our lives to to make up for the parts that are covered by sin and, and shame. We're trying to make sure And so we turn our good things, turn these good things. These are good things to do, going to church, reading your Bible, praying with your kids. These are good things, but we turn them into holy sacrifices as an effort to please God. And we point to these behaviors and we say, this is why you should let me in, God, because of what I've done. It's not that different. It's not that different than sending a a priest into the temple and saying, here's a goat, God. Please forgive us. And there's a problem with that system, right? There's a problem. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It didn't work for the Israelites. I guarantee you it's not working for you right now today. The system doesn't work. It can never fully accomplish the restoration we need with God. Sinful men making imperfect sacrifices to a holy God cannot forgive sin. The Israelites had to hope that this one man that they were sending into the breach had done all his work and had done it the right way. Heaven forbid that he didn't. And so the author of Hebrews sees in Melchizedek something different, something hopeful, hope for a a true and better priesthood. A priesthood of whom Melchizedek, of, of whom the Messiah is the great high priest. And so we get to this argument that he makes in verses 4 to 6 of the importance of Melchizedek and his priesthood. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And these descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, their brothers, even though they also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, from Abraham, this man, let's see, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now, that's kind of a complicated argument, but it's it's not too hard once we consider a few things. First of all, note this, that um, tithes in those days were generally considered to be passed upwards. And even today, when you give your tithe, when you you donate to um, to the church, you're not giving it to me, you're not giving it to John, you're not giving it to St. Paul's, you're giving it to God. You're superior, you're Lord, you're tithing to God. And so the tithes are passed upward to those who are superior. And the second thing to consider is, especially in those days, that the fathers were considered greater than the children. 
The fathers had more honor and more respect, and they were more highly held up, more esteemed than the children. And so the author of Hebrews concludes that Melchizedek and his priesthood is better than the one of the Levites. First, Israel, all of Israel would tithe to the tribe of Levi, right? But here we have in Melchizedek, in Genesis, Abraham, the father of the Levites, giving tithes to this other man. And so as father of the Levites, father of all of his descendants, Abraham was passing a tithe up. It's as if the priests themselves were giving tithes to Melchizedek. The Levites, as children of Abraham, were giving tithes to this figure of the Old Testament, this priest of the Most High God. And so the book of Hebrews concludes, the priesthood of Melchizedek must be greater than that of the Levites. His priesthood predates the law. It predates the Hebrew Levitical priestly system. And it is within this priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, that hope arises for one once and for all who can reconcile God and man. As we've seen, the Levitical priesthood could not accomplish what it promised. Sinful men and women sacrificing bulls and goats cannot atone for mortal sin before a holy God. And so the author of Hebrews, as he's reading his Old Testament, he comes across Psalm 110, right? And this is, based on that psalm, this is what he concludes if you go now to verse 15. This becomes even more evident that the Levitical priesthood doesn't work. It becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, So he's not a priest because of who his daddy was. But he's become a priest by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and this is quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. When a priest comes, one after the order of Melchizedek, a better hope is introduced, a better hope where we can finally draw near to God. Who is this priest, you may ask? You might not ask, you already know. But generally speaking, it's the Jewish Messiah. It's the figure that in Psalm 110 that that David calls Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, who is David's Lord? It's this messianic figure who is coming. He is also a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Remember Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn an oath that you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And thus we have Jesus. The fulfillment of Psalm 110 coming as our Lord and Savior, as our Messiah, as our King, and our Priest. Now, this is important. If Jesus came only as a King, we should be absolutely terrified of Him. We should be absolutely terrified of Him. 
I have a friend in, in Africa who, who visited Uganda, and Uganda, um, the, the Bugandan people of Uganda still have a king. And when their king comes, these businessmen in suits in the city of Uganda will fall flat on their fate, face, prostrate before the king coming down the street. And yet we turn our backs to our king, right? Day in and day out. We read our scriptures and we say, well, I know it says this, but I'm going to do this anyway because it's more fun, it feels better, I like it. Whatever your excuse is, it makes me look better in front of my friends. We turn our back on our king day in and day out. And so if Jesus the king came and he was only a king, you should be very afraid. You should be terrified. But he's not just the king. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest who intercedes for us and mediates for us and offers one full and sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. He gave his life for us. He sacrificed himself on the cross. He spilled his blood that we might draw near to God. And so the author of Hebrews will conclude later on in in verse 10, he says this. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, Jesus Christ has perfected us, those of us who have faith in him. Friends, he is coming to be your king. Do you trust him to be your priest? So I leave for you this, leave you with this. How are you approaching God? Are you appropriating the Hebrew system of sacrifices and doing the same thing over and over again, trying to draw near to God and getting the same results? Or have you turned to Jesus, our king and also our priest, who mediates on our behalf, who has given his life that we might draw near to God, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, our Lord and Savior, who brings us into the presence of God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you 